Welcome back to another episode of In the Aisle. As always, I am your host, Christina. Thank you so much for joining me today so we can get into part two of Now I Know My ABCs, Allegations, Bills, and COVID. So if you recall, I mentioned that, you know, these mini shows are going to be no more and it's instead just going to be episodes in part one and part two. So this is the first official part two that I will have in this podcast and I will be hopefully continuing that with future episodes down the line. And if you recall, if you're somebody who has been sticking with this from the very beginning, I used to do fun facts at the beginning of the then mini-sodes that I had. And I stopped doing those because I was like, well, I promised I'd only do it for the first few. And, you know, people don't really want to hear me talk about myself even more than what I already do in whatever in my podcast. But I've kind of decided to actually go back to the fun facts because I think it's a really great way for you all to get to know me even more um, because there's not a lot of chances that I actually give myself to either talk about my political experiences or, you know, give you a chance to, to learn about me. The other reason why I'm doing this is I've actually noticed a lot more new people have joined in from across the country. So I think it'd be a really fun way for you to get to know me a little bit as the person who's making this podcast. And, you know, of course, make it make it a little bit more interesting, adding some spice, as we'll call it, to to these episodes. So what I am planning on doing today would be, of course, still do a fun fact to start things off and then getting into the details of what we talked about in part one in terms of going to do the deeper analysis with that. So just as a recap, in case you missed that, we'll be talking about the stimulus aid package that is now passed through the Senate, as well as the sexual misconduct allegations against Cuomo and Cawthorn, ending the George Floyd bill making its way to the Senate. So my fun fact today comes from one of the internships I did at the Massachusetts State House. So at this time, I had just finished my freshman year of college. I mean, I was 18 at that point and, you know, really enjoyed actually getting dressed up to go into work at the State House. Like, I don't know about you, but I love like business clothes. I think that's the nerdiest thing I could say, but I just love the way I, I feel in them. I just feel strong and powerful. So I would always dress like a little bit fancier, I would say, than the other interns, just because I I had I had the clothes already from like things that I did had to do in high school and conferences I went to. And I just really, I just again really loved to dress that way. So I remember I was making my way um, back to the office I was working at, and the elevator was like packed with like interns who were going around. And I was just standing outside and there was another staffer who was standing next to me who I'd never met before. And then she turns to me and she goes, oh, interns, am I right? They're so annoying. And I used to remember standing there and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, like I'm an intern. I don't know what to say. So then I was kind of like, yeah, <laughs> I know, right? So, so annoying. And I mean, I, I just remember just being so shocked because I was like, I, I look like a fetus. I don't know how this woman assumes, I don't even have an ID badge. Like, how did she assume that I was not an intern? Or maybe she did and she was being passive aggressive. I don't know. So now we get to talking and I have to take this elevator ride up with her. And I'm like, you know, we're we're just going to have to fake it till we make it at this point, which is a great lesson that all of you can take for any career that you are involved. Really, sometimes it helps to just fake it till you make it. So, no, we're just talking about 
things and then she's throwing out people's names and I'm just kind of like, oh yeah, like Steve, Steve's the worst or like something like that. And it gets to the point where we get out of the elevator and I'm like, oh my God, she's getting off at the same floor as me. And I'm like, okay, what are the odds that we have to walk in the same direction? We do. <laughs> we end up having to walk the whole way together and we're just chit-chatting and she's like, oh, it was just so nice talking to you. I've never met you before. Like what office are you with? And I told her, and, you know, she just never put two and two together that I was an intern. And, you know, I just wasn't going to correct her because of how bad she was bashing all the interns. So we just left it at that. And then every time I saw her around the state house at that point afterwards, she would always greet me like an old friend. And I'm like, well, I am, I'm simply 18. I, I'm not even done with half of my college career at this point. But if you want to think that I'm one of your colleagues, I'm not going to stop you because of I'm, I'm too scared to, to back out at this point. So, you know, one day I want to go back to the state house and find her. I, I don't even remember her name, but um, I want to find her. And if I ever get a job in the state house, then I can tell her the whole story because I'm sure it would be funny. But, you know, that is the time that I, you know, really just pretended that I was an actual staffer at the state house instead of admitting that I was an intern to get out of an awkward situation. Now that that fun fact is out of the way, let's get into the analysis that I have for you all today, which I'm sure is the main reason why you're here. Now, before I actually talk about anything that I talked about in part one of this episode, I just want to point out something really ironic that happened in last week's minisode that I didn't have time to fit in the main episode. So if you recall, last week's minisode, I talked about how silent Trump has been, especially with, you know, the, the investigations against him in New York and Georgia. And then it was like the universe heard me and challenged me two hours later after like recording, editing and releasing that minisode. Trump was on the news for the conference that he attended down in Florida. And, you know, he gave a speech and... I just got through saying we didn't hear from him. And now this is, of course, when he wants to speak. But just wanted to bring this up again because, you know, after thinking about it and watching him at that conference, I still stand by what I said. Like, if you analyze, like, him as a whole that day, like, he was just not his normal Trump self, uh, we'll call it. He was very watered down from how he normally is. Like, he was not exuding confidence, in my opinion. He was a little on the reserve side, too, I think. I think that speaks volumes because it, it to his supporters and to people who, you know, are looking at this from a bird's eye view, they're probably like, oh, like if Trump's coming back now better than ever. But to me, again, it, it looked like he was not thriving and he was trying to give off the energy that he was, but, you know, in reality, was not happening. So... That is kind of what I only wanted to talk about in terms of that conference. I really don't think there's much else to really talk about. It was just really interesting to see that that was a venue that he decided to speak at. And it probably to some people looked like he was crushing it. To me personally, I don't think that's the case at all. So now that I've gotten that out of my system, we can now move on to the analysis of the other things that we talked about in part. Let's go into more detail now of with the stimulus aid package. So the thing that you actually need to know was on Saturday, the bill actually passed through the Senate. 
that was pretty much right down party lines. Something like this is really, I mean, it's really great for this country. Like I, before I get into the criticisms that I have, I want to still point that out. Like it's a lot of good things that this bill will be doing, hopefully, if they're able to be executed correctly. And of course, the Republicans who, because like, again, it was down party lines, the Republicans who didn't like it, their issues were that it was just frivolous spending and that needed more time to make something that was more comprehensive to what they think needs to be done for the pandemic right now, as well as with stimulus checks. The other thing that's important to note that you have some moderate Democrats who all still thought that the bill was too expensive, but weren't about to go against their own party. Because I think at the end of the day, they realize like too much hassle for me to have to deal with that, not have this bill be passed. And also, you know, we need something in the work. So if this has to be what we have to do right now, then they'll we'll, we'll suck it up and we'll still vote in favor of this bill. The other thing that's really important about this bill before I get into any criticisms is that it's really just the Democrats showing the Republicans that they don't need them at all. <laughs> like they have the numbers really. And so something like this in particular, they didn't need them like at any point throughout the process. And while it was nice, if you recall, there was some bipartisan efforts in the beginning to see if, you know, Democrats and Republicans could work together. The Democrats took a risk and said, you know what, if you guys want to defect, we don't really care. We're, we're still going to get this bill passed with the $1.9 trillion. And they were successful. So again, I think that sends a really strong message to the Republicans, at least now until, you know, the midterms in 2022, where like we have the majority, if we want to get things done, we're going to find a way to get things done. Those are very strong message that they're able to send to the Republicans. And I'm sure a lot of Republicans are not happy about it. But again, there's still a chance to have bipartisan efforts down the line with other legislation. It's just, unfortunately, in my opinion, it's going to keep falling on the same people to do that. Your moderates like Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and people like that who are Republican, but who are open to not always having to vote with their own party. So that pressure might prove to be too much, but these this is also hypothetical. We won't know until more legislation makes its way to the Senate and negotiations could go down. Now let's get into the stimulus checks themselves. I have an issue with them, which may surprise some of you because, I mean, it's, it's a good thing people are getting money. But if you, th if you think of it this way, between this $1,400 that people are getting, which it's very restrictive if you recall, it's $75,000 or less if that's what you're making, you're entitled to the full $1,400. If you make up to $80,000, you get a little bit less than that. And of course, there's more restrictions if like you're married and you can only make up to a certain amount to qualify for the checks and things like that. Let's say you get the full amount each time a stimulus has been released. So the first $600 that we had, and then now the $1,400, which would bring it up to $2,000. And then, of course, that $1,200 stimulus check that was also released. So $3,200. We've been in the pandemic for a year now. So if you divide 32 by 12 months, that's less than $300 a month that people have been getting from the government that they claim will be enough to, you know, pay, pay for bills and things like that. I actually saw an article from Business Insider that suggested that the $1,400 people are getting now in March, or technically it would be probably like April or May, people would see that, 
would be enough to pay for their bills until June or July. Like, I don't know what world they're living in, but that money can would probably cover someone's rent for maybe one month, maybe a month and a half, depending on where you're living. But it's, and again, it's, it's great that we're getting it if you're not a dependent and you are within the threshold of like what you're making and being able to qualify. But to me, it's, it's just a slap across the face. And I believe I've actually brought this up before in terms of, you know, what the government has done in distributing funds. Because to me, when I see something like this and I look at the amounts where it's like 600, 1200, now 1400, like the government in doing so is acknowledging that people need help and they are acknowledging that they have a responsibility to help their citizens. But they're doing like the bare minimum. And I honestly don't even think it's the bare minimum. I think it's it's too generous for me to call it that at this point. And, you know, some people it's really going to benefit them because, you know, they they are stable right now. They have an income coming in. Their housing is not on the line and they're still living comfortably or working from home. So, you know, to some, most people, I'm sure this is going to be just an extra little boost that they can either put in their savings or put towards loans or something like that. But for the people who are truly struggling right now, to get the $1,400 is just offensive, I, I think. Not to, again, they can use that money, and I'm sure it's going to be great for them to, to have that money. But again, it's just the, it's the government acknowledging that they, they need to be doing something and then just not doing what they should be and not following through and not doing enough. This is one of those things, too, where I think most of our members of Congress actually believe that either A... We shouldn't be giving out any funds in the first place, though they acknowledge that people need help right now. Or B, we should be giving out very little and people should be able to do it on their own. I think a very small amount of people in the House and the Senate are in the mindset of we need to be giving out thousands of dollars per month to help people. I think, I mean, it's very reflective, of course, in that $1.9 trillion, because think about how much of that is actually going towards the stimulus checks. So that's where I have an issue with it. And again, being grateful, I understand that. I don't want to come off as like, I would rather get nothing than the 1400 Like, that's not what I'm trying to say. But I think the government thinks it's doing more than what it actually is at this point. And they have the power and they have the reserve to be doing more for people. But they're not doing that right now. And at this point, it's like we've been in this for a year again. What more needs to happen for people to be getting some help? It's, it's unbelievable to me that we, we still have people who, you know, are in the same boat as they were a year ago when they first lost their jobs or first affected by COVID. So I really hope that we see at least one more stimulus check come out. But that's kind of up in the air at this point. And I can guarantee you if, it's, if there's another chance for one to come out, the Republicans are going to be coming out swinging. And saying, you know what, that $1.9 trillion was way too much and there's going to be a lot of arguments in terms of that. But that's really kind of what I wanted to analyze today, going, of course, getting into more detail with. Because, you know, it's great we think about the stimulus checks as, as positive things. And in some ways they are. But for some people, it's just still not enough to survive. Let's switch gears now to talk about, of course, the allegations against Cawthorn and Cuomo. So if you remember in part one, I said, you know, Cawthorn, don't really see anything coming of that right now. So I'm going to spend more time talking about Cuomo because there's a few updates with that and, you know, a lot more again to discuss. 
So I think the first thing I want to mention is one of the aides that came out accusing Homo of, you know, touching her and being inappropriate and flirting with her said that it actually completely derailed her career and her her aspirations to be in politics. Or at least that's what her lawyer will be arguing in court if it gets to that point. And I think that's really profound, first and foremost, because I think a lot of people don't realize that when something like this happens, it it does completely derail a person. I don't want to say that in the sense that, you know, that's not something obvious that we would be able to understand. But this is, again, one of those things that drives women away from politics because, you know, we know that there are a lot of predators who are in positions of power who could be coming in contact with if we pursue a career in politics. So I think in this case, it's really important to remember the impact that even if Cuomo didn't mean it, his actions had on somebody else. And the New York State Legislature actually, on Friday night, repealed Cuomo's emergency pandemic power, which basically takes away a lot of his power that he was given in terms of being able to operate and do things within the pandemic. He can still do some things like changing the restrictions that are already in place and like modifying those, but a lot of his power is now being stripped away because of these allegations. He also now can't issue any new statewide directives without conferring with the legislature first. And now all he can really do in terms of that is do an executive order, which we actually touched on, if you recall, not too long ago in D-Cubed. It's really interesting to see that also pan out, and it definitely has changed how I look at him. And again, it just it's just a really great reminder that we should never be putting our politicians on a pedestal. So now that these two women have come forward, they are kind of stirring up a lot of things that I don't think that they realized were going to happen. Cuomo was now facing a lot of other allegations not having to do with touching women and any misconduct, actually like criticizing him as a governor, which I think a lot of people were just waiting for the right time in order to do this and saw their golden moment with the allegations coming out. This is a man who, you know, has been revered across the country for how he handled the pandemic in New York and like his personality and his energy while doing it. And I think a lot of people were just like, damn it, we had something on him now it's going to be so much harder to come out and criticize him. So now they're just taking advantage of this situation that these women have created by coming forward and pursuing other things. For example, something that Cuomo is being accused of now is underrepresenting how many people actually got sick and died of COVID in the state of New York. The particular instance that I've heard of would be underreporting the number of people who died in nursing homes by like up to 50% in some cases, which is huge because again, Cuomo has been revered for like his efforts in keeping the pandemic manageable in New York. And so if you're under-reporting those numbers, then you're you're just lying at this point. And like he, he got an award for, you know, his efforts in giving daily press briefings to the people of New York and keeping them informed that way. Basically, the award will be a lie because all he was doing was lying if, the, if it's true what these people are saying. I don't care what they do. There are very few politicians who deserve to get some of the recognition that they do. I think we can kind of all agree on that. Like, so some people, you're like, 
Why are they so popular? How is it possible that people love them so much? And I think a lot of the times people, you know, either don't know the full story or choose to look past the bad and the ugly, so to speak. I think Cuomo is definitely not somebody who is benefiting from that anymore because people are very clearly upset with him and are now picking him apart. The other piece of this, which is a little bit on the more gossipy side, but definitely want to throw it in, would be uh, Chris Cuomo. For those of you who don't know, Chris Cuomo, the anchor at CNN, or the reporter, I should say, is somebody who is directly related to Governor Cuomo because they're brothers. And, you know, a lot of the times they would do interviews with one another and, you know, he, Chris Cuomo would get the scoop of what's going on in New York. So this might also impact Chris Cuomo in the future. Whatever happens with his brother now, he'll get what's coming to him, whatever that is at some point down the line. If it's really true what everyone is saying, he's going to get what's coming to him. But that's kind of all we can really say right now in terms of the allegations. I'm sure it's going to be something that's going to still be spotlighted in the news as more details are developed. So now let's move on to the George Floyd bill that it's making its way to the Senate. The thing that I kind of want to talk on today doesn't really have to do with this specifically, but I think it's a really good thing to point out in terms of having political discussions and conversations. So something that I've been trying to get myself to do is to, you know, not shy away from topics that make me uncomfortable in on this podcast, at least. And part of the reason why I'm doing that is because there's a lot of times I feel like there's a fear of being canceled if we can't articulate our points correctly. And we're worried that if we're sharing our opinions that people don't like, you know, that we're automatically going to get canceled. I mean, cancel culture is, is terrible in itself, but the, the, I mean, the point I'm trying to make here is I don't want my, myself to be afraid to speak on things. And I also don't want you listening to be afraid to speak on things. Because I genuinely believe that the best way to learn from one another is to have those hard conversations and to grow from them and to, to understand and to, to see other viewpoints. And you can't grow and learn and understand if you don't start having those conversations. So a great example of this is when I was talking about the George Floyd bill in part one. You know, I said I was very scared <laughs> about talking about it because I just didn't want to say the wrong thing. And even listening back, I was like, wow, I, I didn't really articulate what the point I was trying to get across that well, in my opinion, at least. And, you know, I honestly was was tempted to cut it. And even now I, I had a whole thing planned for this part, too, that I did end up cutting because, you know, it is pushing myself out of my comfort zone, but not quite there yet in terms of things that I feel OK talking about as a white person. But I just wanted to say that, you know, taking the first step is is all you need to be doing in, right now and kind of meeting yourself where you're at. So, you know, it can be really scary to have conversations about triggering things or even have conversations about things that you don't think that you're qualified to speak on at all or have knowledge about. But in order to learn and grow, like I said, I really think it comes down to you need to start putting yourself out there to have those conversations. So I just want to throw that in here first because I think from what I hear about people in my own life is that they only have conversations with people they're comfortable with. And that's great. Like, that's really cool that you can have conversations. But I think we need to start pushing ourselves to be comfortable enough to the point where we can at least start talking with people that we're not necessarily super close with about things that we don't know about or things that make us nervous in order to grow and to order to understand each other as humans 
in this crazy country that we're living in right now. So I just wanted to throw that in there. It is, again, not something necessarily political, but something I really think is is worth pointing out um, before I get into, of course, the rest of what I wanted to discuss with the George Floyd analysis. And the main thing I wanted to talk about, you know, has to do more with, like, the Republicans, specifically in the Senate. So for a bill like this, you actually are going to need to have at least 10 Republicans side with the Democrats, assuming that all the Democrats in the chamber vote to pass this bill through, which I think is pretty safe to say that will happen. But again, you need 10 Republicans to side with them. So there's a lot of things that could happen with this. Again, what I was talking about with, you know, this could be falling on the shoulders of the moderates, I think is going to be very clear in this circumstance. I think it'd be, I'd be surprised if that didn't happen. So there's going to be a lot of Republicans um, that, you know, just aren't even going to look at this bill because they already, they hear police reform and they get, they see the bullet points, so to speak, of what this bill is about and are just never going to be for it. But there are some Republicans who could be. The difference here with, you know, getting the votes for this versus the stimulus aid is that the, the stimulus aid only needed a, a slight majority to get that passed under budget resolution. It was, it was a special provision that only required to have a, a slight majority. This is a regular bill. So it means that you need to have more people in the Senate vote in favor of it in order for it to pass. So that's where those 10 Republicans come in potentially. So to get the Republicans on board with this is going to be hard. In my opinion, it's actually going to fall more back on the Democrats because it's up to them, I think, to decide how badly they want this bill to be passed and how much of it is non-negotiable. Because in order for something like this to be passed, I think a lot of things are going to have to be changed about it in order for the Republicans to, to get on board with it, or I should say enough Republicans to get on board with it. So it depends on how stubborn the Democrats want to be. And, you know, there are some things about the bill that, in my opinion, should be non-negotiable. Like with that registry that I was referring to in part one in the database, I think that should never leave that bill. And, you know, that's a, that's a hill that it should probably die on, if anything. You know, there's other things in there, the nitty small, nitty gritty details that if they're changed, that could potentially have the Republicans be more in favor to vote for it. Now, what those nitty-gritty details are, I couldn't tell you. From what I understand about this bill is really what I've given in part one and what they're, what is basically available to you by reading the news and doing your own research online. I uh, wish I had the time to, to go through the actual legislation of it, but that would take way too long. So here we are talking about hypothetical nitty-gritty details that, again, could make the difference between the Republicans voting in favor or against it. And unfortunately, those are details that we don't know until we actually do that research for ourselves. All in all, it's just really up in the air at this point. And I think that's really what's going to come down to a lot of what's happening in the Senate. Like a lot of legislation I think we're going to see, at least now through 2022, is going to pass the House very easily because the Democrats have the majority again, and they have it by not as close margins as it is in the Senate. So, you know, things can get passed right through and make its way to the Senate. And since the Democrats, again, have a slight majority in the Senate, they can at least be the ones to, to put things on the docket and, of course, have debate be held on them and have votes be held on them. 
that is where the easiness stops, really, because <laughs> it's going to get a lot harder to, of course, you need to get those Republicans to decide with you. Because, again, some legislation like the Senate aid only needed a slight majority. Other legislation like this bill with George Floyd needs more than just 50 votes or 51 votes. My prediction is that this bill, the way it stands right now, probably won't be passed, as terrible as it is to say. My hope is that there's enough Republicans who can have at least the the respect and I'll just leave it at that, the respect to try to work with the Democrats to see if something could get changed and altered so that it is something that they can feel okay voting for. And I really hope that their Democrats aren't going to be super stubborn and stick to their guns too much and be willing to to be more flexible on certain things. I mean, like I said, non-negotiables are important. They're like the the meat of the bill, in my opinion, and they shouldn't be changed. But there's other things that, like I said, nitty-gritty details that could be. So I will be monitoring this and seeing how it goes down the Senate, and I'll be sure to give you guys an update when we find out more. One new thing that I want to bring up that I did see actually as a tweet, which I looked into more and found out it was true, was that Trump has said he is planning to campaign against Lisa Murkowski, who I've, you know, I've mentioned more than once on this podcast. She is the senator from Alaska, or I should say one of the two senators from Alaska and is a Republican. And the reason why Trump is campaigning against her because he is doing what I like to refer to as a revenge tour. He is planning on, you know, going after the Republicans who, but in his opinion, spited him while he was in office and who he calls very bad for the party. Basically, in other words, he's going against the people who weren't full supporters of him the whole time. And I, when I first read that headline, I literally have my mouth drop. And I'm not even exaggerating when I say that because I read it first as, oh my God, he's going to be running for for the her seat in Alaska. He's literally going to move and become a citizen of Alaska in order to do this in 2022. Upon further investigation, that is not what is what is going to happen as far as I know. It looks like he's just going to make it his life's mission to get her out of office. I'm bringing this up for two reasons. One, It's very important to keep tabs on this man because as annoying as it is to keep talking about him and you're like, oh, he's out of office, he's no longer relevant, I think we could have a circumstance where if we forget about him, he's just going to sneak his way back into politics. And that is not something that I want to see. I'm sure a lot of you would agree with me, Democrat, Republican, can we can both agree on this, that he was just not good for the party. But the other reason why I want to bring this up is that if he if he's actually planning on doing this down the line for other people running for office, this could be very damaging to the Republican Party. And I'll explain why. So let's say he goes to Alaska to campaign against Lisa Murkowski. He's obviously not going to, to support any Democratic candidate that's going to be running against her. So he instead would either, you know, recruit a very conservative Republican to run against her or you know, wait and see if somebody is already running and then just choose to to be in their corner instead of hers. What this will do is split the Republican vote. So you'll have some people stick with Murkowski, and then you'll have some people who are the diehard Trump supporters who 
would vote for whoever he's backing. So if this splits the Republican vote, then that actually leaves it wide open for a Democrat to come in and take Lisa Murkowski's seat. Because again, you know, you might even have it where like, let's say 60% of the voting population in Alaska is Republican. And this is just a number I'm making up. It's not the truth. But let's just say, for example, 60% are Republican in Alaska. If you have it where even 10 to to 15% are swayed by Trump, that means that the Lisa Murkowski wouldn't get enough votes to win. Neither would Trump's person. And then again, the Democrats can come in and take it. And if this keeps happening, if Trump really wants to do a revenge tour, then it actually could really benefit the Democrats because it would be a situation where he would go into these states that he wants to talk, like basically get back at the politicians who, who slighted him. And then again, split the vote and make it so that Democrats have an easier chance of winning, which is really interesting and goes to show you that he is not thinking about his party at all. He is just thinking about himself and what he wants and what he's, he really is trying to achieve. So you could actually see a lot more Democrats getting elected to the Senate and completely flipping the majority um, even more so in their favor. You do have people that like Mitch McConnell who said that they would support Lisa Murkowski. But at the same time, you had people, again, like Mitch McConnell a week ago say that if Trump ran for office in 2024, they would support him 100%. So it's really interesting to see like how certain... Republicans are navigating this. And by certain Republicans, I mean kind of like the spineless ones. No offense, because again, I know that's not everybody in the Republican Party. But the ones who who basically are flip-flopping between one day loving Trump and one day hating him, like what Lindsey Graham was doing as well. So I think the Republican Party is, is going to be facing a very challenging next few years if this is what Trump is really planning on doing. Honestly, as a Democrat, would I love to see more Democrats make it to the Senate in elected positions? Of course. I'm not going to pretend and lie to you and say that, that that isn't what I would I would like to see. But I don't want it to be because of of Trump. <laughs> as is because it, it really it because of like a petty thing that he's planning on doing. So we'll see we'll see what happens. Just want to bring that up because, you know, he could also be all talk, no game, but this is the first time that I've actually seen him planning on taking action after losing the presidency. So I wanted to make you all aware of that in case you're wondering, you know, what what is he doing or what's his next move? The last thing I'm going to say on this is actually just specific to Alaska. So for those of you who don't know and didn't have to do research on this in your undergrad like I did, specific to Alaska, Alaska is a very special state when it comes to parties. Independents actually have had, in recent years, held elected office in Alaska. So in terms of, you know, what I was saying about splitting the vote, it's very possible that Trump could pick an independent as his his person to run against Lisa Murkowski. So, because as we know, like with the primaries, we know the primaries are there for a reason because they make make it so that the field of candidates in each party is narrowed down to one person which we then, you know, make the final decision in the general to see who wins the seat that we are putting our votes towards. So you could have it where Trump could pick an independent and then, you know, the primaries will still have Lisa Murkowski come for the Republican nomination. You'll have a Democrat and then the independent will be 
in its own thing. So you'll have three candidates to pick from instead of the normal two that we have. So that is really what I was talking about with splitting the vote. Just wanted to, to put that clear in terms of like what it looks like for Alaska. If Trump were to do this with other states, it would be a little different. It would it would still be bad for the Republican Party because, you know, he would be picking somebody to run against the Republican candidate in their primary. But after that, when the Republican person wins, whether or not that's Trump's pick, you might still have Republicans still defaulting to, you know, sticking with their party and voting, um, even if it's not Trump's person who won. So I just want to throw that out there as a bit of a clarifier for Alaska in particular, just because it is very different, in my opinion, in its state's politics than other states have. We are at yet another end to an episode of In the Isle. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Just want to run through a few more things before we wrap up for today. So the first thing I want to talk about is I actually just finished another interview that will be airing hopefully next week, if not the following week, with my friend Caitlin Wright. To get a little bit of information about her, she actually works in the Massachusetts State House and has a lot of experience in Massachusetts politics. And I wanted to give her a chance to, to speak with me so that all of you could hear because she really has such a great perspective, I think, and personally on politics, specifically with women in politics. And the conversation we had was so fun. I, I love talking to her and it was just really great to you know, connect back with her, especially for this podcast. So I can't wait for you to hear her down the line and be sure to follow my Instagram at In the Isle Podcast if you haven't already, so you can get to learn even more about her as well as hearing and seeing updates that I have for this podcast. Moving forward, we of course are still going to be celebrating Women's History Month this entire month of March, so be sure to get ready for some more updates and things down the line, as well as of course a second interview that I have later on this month that you'll be able to listen to. That is all that I actually have to say today. As always, feel free to follow on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and, of course, leave reviews if you'd like to do that. And thank you again to everybody who has been sharing this with friends. It definitely is something that I notice and something I appreciate so much. So it really means a lot to me that you're still continuing to do this and helping me get the word out there about this podcast. As always, I've been your host, Christina. It's an absolute pleasure making this podcast for you all. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Until next time when I see you in the aisle. Take care, everybody. Have a wonderful rest of your week again.